the next couple of Sundays, uh, I'm going to be here, but I'm not going to be teaching. You're going to get some special treats this week. The right reverend, Dr. Greg Watson, is in the house. And then uh, next Sunday, our pastor students, Brian Tabor, will be teaching. Every time Matt introduces me like that, I, I kind of don't know what to do. I, I want to, part of me wants to kind of just put my head down and duck under the thing and say, yeah, he ain't here. Uh, thank you. This, this has been one of the most interesting, since, since Matt asked me to, to, to speak this morning, this has been one of the most interesting couple of weeks I've, I've had in a long time. Because as I started praying and seeking around for, you know, what text, you know, right around Christmas, what do you do? I had an encounter down near where I live. I, we live on the seminary campus. We live in faculty housing. We couldn't afford a mailbox in Marin County, so we live in faculty housing. And uh, just down below us is, is, a, is a fairly nice neighborhood down there, really, really, really nice neighborhood down below us. Um, we call it the spit, and we take our dog down there to play and walk and stuff. Well, I, over the years, I have met so many people and, and uh, established relationships, 12, 13-year relationships with people where they find out what I do, and we've had this ongoing conversation with people about, about who Jesus is and, and why I'm a follower of Jesus, why, why I believe Jesus is, is the Messiah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those labors of love because... Honestly, there really hadn't been a whole lot of progress with, with many of them. But one of the people um, I actually had a conversation with the other day, and um, this woman's a Buddhist, and uh, we finally got down to talking about the differences between, the, the real difference between Buddhism and Christianity. Buddhism is a non-theistic religion. They don't believe in a God. And we are a theistic religion. We believe there's a God, and we believe there is one God. So in, in many ways, our worldview and understanding of things is really, really worlds apart. But this was my opportunity to share with her what it is I believe as a Christian, because she asked me a question. You know, this is Christmas and stuff like that. She says, uh, why did Jesus come? And, you know, in, in her view now, she's thinking Jesus is, is a human being who has this divine spark that I have, that, you know, we're all God's Jesus. So she sees Jesus' deity in a much different way. And therefore, she doesn't understand the whole picture of why it was Jesus came. And um, I'm sitting there inside, I'm going, on the one hand, I'm going, man, that's a really good question. You know, that's, that's a hard one. How am I going to do that? On the other hand, I'm going, yes, Lord, you opened the door. Thank you, yes. And um, you know, in, in thinking about that opportunity to share and stuff, two things happen, and then a couple other things happen. First, I was looking for a paradigm. How do I open up the gospel to this woman who really has no clue about it? And the first thing that popped in my mind is John 3.16. What a perfect thing. It's, it's, it's the entire plan. It's, it's the entire thing that God has done to bring us to salvation in a nutshell. So, you know, it, it was there. Um, and the second thing was is, now, how do I keep from being theologian, Greg, and completely confusing and driving this lady away? Which is, it's hard no matter what context I'm in. But uh, essentially, it came down to the 
to those two things. And so, you know, I wanted to find a simple way. And, you know, actually, this being the, you know, couple days after Christmas, I think, it's an, it's, I think that same question is really, really significant for us. I think we need to ask, why did Jesus come? Okay? Now, in getting ready for this, I realize there are two things. I'm, I'm fixing to tell you, yeah, what I believe, but what I believe is right, what I believe is true. And there's two, two sources of that, okay? How do you know that Jesus is the Son of God? The first one is simple for me, because the Bible tells me so. I don't believe I have a God that would leave me hanging out there with some, without some direction, some authority, to speak the significance of his truth into my life. And that's one way that God does it. Scripture talks about, I mean, the, the Bible itself talks about um, Scripture being food for the believer. This is the thing that we nourish ourselves on, the truths of God that we nourish ourselves on uh, to grow and, and, and to come and understand God better. But the second part, and that's, that's a fairly, in my mind, that's a fairly objective thing. Okay? Um, but the other thing is, is a lot more uh, subjective. I know Jesus as my personal Savior. I've been a Christian since I was six years old. I was baptized at six years old, so 44 years now. And one thing that I found, one thing that, that nails this down and tells me this truth is that I'm just not acknowledging some abstract person who has claimed to be uh, a magical deity stop person. This is someone that I know. Been a Christian 44 years, been married 26 years. I've been married more than half my life. How do I know that my wife loves me and how do I know that I love my wife? It's because I know the day-to-day -day experience, the moment-to-moment -moment experience, the time that I've spent alone with my God Asking him, begging him for his character, asking him to forgive me, asking him to, to do things for others, and thanking him and praising him for who he is. Those times of interaction and interchange over the years have given me a certainty that Jesus Christ is who he claims to be. So I've got two bases for what I want to say about John 3.16. First off, God didn't leave me to dangle out there and figure this out on my own. He gave me his word to help direct me. And number two, he's placed himself, he placed his son in my life and in a place where I can commune with him. I commune with the living God. So, those two things, that's, you know, those are two things that I, that I do, that I know, that I'm, I'm aware of. But, like I said, um, this passage right here really became a touchstone. Now, that, the font looks kind of small. Can you see it okay out there? Okay. I have no outline and no notes, okay? The next, the next slide, and you don't change yet, but the next slide is gonna be for God so loved the world. We're gonna walk through John 3.16, and I want to help you understand why John 3.16 is a great pattern for us to follow. So let's read through it real quick. For God, read, read with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. 
Now, I want you to do me a favor, and I don't know if you've got a Bible, pick it up and turn to John 3.16. It's 978 in my Bible. I don't know what it is in yours. Or wait, 979. Pick up your Bibles. Can somebody tell me what page uh, it's on in, the, in these pew Bibles that we've got? Huh? 852. 862. Thank you. Now, as we walk through here, I'm, I'm going to play the teacher here. As we walk through this, when I, when I point out a particular word or, I, or, or something in there, I want you to put your finger on it with me. Okay? Because what I'm saying, I want you to be able to tie the text and the meaning and the application and stuff together in your mind. And that's kind of a physical way of, of connecting yourself to the text there. Okay? Now, one other thing I want to do before I, I dive in here. John 3, 6, this one verse, and listen, when I teach my students about preparing sermons and about interpreting passages and stuff, I, I say, never preach one verse. Never preach one verse, because it's too easy to take it out of context. Now, you could do it from time to time, but you've got to really be disciplined, but... I mean, for the most part, you need, people need more context than, than what we're, we're going to do today. So, number one, I'm violating my own rules. I'm failing my own class. But uh, I, I do want to place in a little bit of literary context here. Um, Jesus' ministry, um, Jesus is, um, has just changed the water into wine. Um, he's just cleaned out the temple in Jerusalem. And now he's, he's sitting down with one of the Pharisees. You know, these Pharisees are going, wait a minute, this dude is stealing all the thunder. Wait, who is this guy? And so this guy Nicodemus comes and he sits down and he wants to talk to Jesus and figure out, so what is, who are you? What, what is all this going on? There's no doubt that you're, you're a great and powerful prophet, but I want to know what's going on here. Well, they get in this conversation, this back and forth. Um, some of it's kind of confusing. But uh, you get down here to verse 16, um, and uh, I don't know if your Bibles have it. Some Bibles will have red lettering in them. The, the Bibles y'all have have red lettering in them? No? And, and that's, that, that people are going more and more to that, and that's, that's perfectly fine with me. But in, in many Bibles, the red letters are intended to show the words of Jesus. Okay? Now, in many Bibles... Uh, the, the red letters begin in verse 10 and run all the way through verse 21 in chapter 16. Okay? Uh, in my Bible, in, or in this, this version of the, new, the same one you've got out there, in fact, um, the red letters stop at verse 15. So in other words, um, and, and I think they're correct, what we have in verses 16 through 21, the last few verses of this, of this passage, is not directly the words of Jesus, what we have is John's inspired commentary on what Jesus said in, in the earlier verses. Now, that may not be important to you. You may say, well, why are you wasting my time with that? Because it's, it's awesome to me that God cared enough to have someone turn around and quit telling the story long enough to look me in the eye and say, this is the truth about Jesus. This is what Jesus meant by what he just said. The Bible is a teacher. It's a great teacher. So, let's go ahead and, and start with this first, verse, uh, first line there. For God so loved the world. Now, anytime you have a for, it means that what's fiction to be said is following up, undergirding, or explaining in some way what came before. 
Okay, so we've got that out of the way. Um, the one thing I want to focus on is those two words, so love. God so love. Actually, this, this verse here, and if you have your Bible there, make a little note here. The way this ought to read is, God loved us in this way, colon. This first line here, for God so loved the world, is actually the beginning of an explanation. For God loved the world in this way. Let me read verse 15 so it'll kind of put that in context. Um, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God, based on that, eternal life, for God has loved the world in this way. This is the manner in which God has loved the world. And everything that follows is going to be an explanation of that love. Now, here's the thing about that word love there. Okay, notice the ED on the end. Now, in English, what does the ED on the end of a verb mean? Hey, you're excellent. Now, but the idea of this passage is, is that it's, it's telling the story, it's viewing what the author is saying is being presented in terms of an entire picture. It's not just focusing on that one moment that God loved in this moment and has never loved before or since. No, it's, it's a big picture thing. So what God is, what, what, what actually John is doing is he's focused, taking us back to Genesis 1, when God created the heavens and earth. How many, can somebody re, just flip over a couple of pages and read John 1, 1 to me? Anybody? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Do you hear that? In the beginning. The Gospel of John is very concerned with creation. It's very concerned with that beginning. With, with their, and and you, see, you see the imagery flowing out of there, water and light, and, and, and all of these different imagery, this different imagery from chapter 1 there flowing out of there. What John is saying here is that in this big picture sense, God has always loved the world. He created the world out of love. And as the apex of his creation, he created mankind for relationship with him. Now, you know what? I don't know if, if animals know who God is or not. My dog, Roxy, has never looked me in the eye and said, man, I love Jesus. I don't know if animals can do that. So I don't know, you know, there, there, there are many theories and ways of looking at why God created animals, but I knew, knew know that God created you and I for fellowship with him. And that that was one of the greatest acts of love. In fact, it was a very redemptive act because it took nothingness and it made something. And out of that nothingness, God brought order and he put something there and he put stuff there so that you and I could live, so that we could survive, so that we could relate with him. God created us in the beginning for relationship. God loved. Second thing about that word love. Love is not a static word. And love is not a feeling. What I mean by, when, when I say it's not a static word, love is an active word. The, the thing it signifies is an active thing that we do. 
And love is also a choice. If God is a free being, then God freely chooses to love us. He doesn't love us because he has to. He loves us because he wants to. For God so loved the world, there is nothing that has ever trumped the love of God toward us. Let's have a second line. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now we're getting into the fun part. God's love was so great that he gave his only son. It's a free gift. It's not a gift that's deserved. In, 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 in church terms, we call this grace. It's a, it's a word that Paul uses a great deal. And essentially what it means, it's a, it's a gift given. A gift of great value that's given without any expectation of return. God gave. Let me explain why that's important. Also, you go back to Genesis. Genesis 1 tells about the six, seven days of creation. Genesis 2 tells about uh, the creation of the man and the woman in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3 tells about how the relationship between God and Adam and Eve was broken. And we won't go into a lot of detail about it, but essentially what happened is, is the man and the woman decided that they wanted to be like God, they wanted to be God, they wanted to know the things that God know, knew, and so they broke the one law, the rule that God made. One thing that would, they thought, Help them be like God. They jumped the track. And the biblical, the, the way the picture, the Bible builds this picture for us is, is that um, in the beginning there was this perfect harmonious relationship between God and between the man and the woman. And, and when, when everything's right this way and every, everything's right this way, man, the world is good. But once things got broken between the man and the woman and God, the things between themselves broke down. And there was not only dissonance between the man and the woman and God, there was dissonance between the man and the woman. And it became quickly obvious as you read through the biblical story. And if you look in your own lives and you think about it, it became quickly obviously that Adam and Eve didn't have the solution for their own problem. They didn't have the combination that would set things right with God. So beginning after that, that point in chapter 3, the rest of the Bible, the whole rest of the Bible is about what God's, God's redemptive plan to set things right between himself and man. Remember that love thing? That whole plan is not done simply for God's own benefit. God did it for our benefit because he, because he loves us. He gave his only son. Now that, that only son harkens back to, to uh, the story of Abraham in Genesis chapter 22. When God tells Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, your son Isaac, and go sacrifice him up on the mountain at a place that I'll show you. Now, if God were to ask you to take one of your kids 
Well, some of you might, you might go ahead and do it anyway before you got to the mountaintop. <laughs> but you, what, what's your first response? How can we have a God that would ask that question? How can a God? I don't know. I'm just going to be perfectly honest. I don't know. But thank God for his provision. Because right as he was about to do this act of obedience to God, God sent a ram uh, who got its horns caught in a, in a, in a bush and, and they were able to sacrifice it. God is always redemptive. But this idea, this only son, this idea of God giving his only son is harkening back again, once again, back to that, that story in Genesis. And what's the theme of that story? Faith and redemption. Abraham believed God. God had promised him, I'll give you, a, I'll give you descendants you can't count. Even though your wife can't have kids, even though she's 99 years old, I'm going to give you kids. I'm going to give you descendants more numerous than you can count. God gives him his son. Isaac, and then tells him, go sacrifice. And, it, and what we see is that God takes Abraham's faithfulness, his willingness to sacrifice what he considered to be the very promise of God. And the Bible tells us that God considered, accounted it to him as righteousness. Faith brings redemption. Faith brings reconciliation. Faith brings salvation. We don't have the answer for our sin. We don't have the answer in ourselves to fix and bridge the gap that separates us from God. We cannot do it. One thing that we Christians can, you know, and, and if we're honest in, in, in any given minute, we honestly don't deserve the salvation that we've got. See, this is a free gift. It's nothing we did to earn it. Frankly, there's quite frankly, there's nothing we can do to earn it. Therefore, God had to provide the way. We needed a bridge built from, uh, from this chasm that separates us from God. We needed a bridge built from here to God, where God is. And we could not do that for ourselves. So, the God... The great judge of the universe, the great creator of the universe, created a way for us to get him because he loves us. He gave his only son. Now let's see the next one. That whoever believes in him. Now, I want to back up. So God so loved, well, the first one said, for God so loved the what? That Whoever believes in him. One of the things that I hear when I share the gospel and I talk about this, one of the things that people, that people object to is this idea that, well, you're just in an exclusive. I can't, I can't buy into a religion that's that exclusive. Look, there is nothing exclusive about what Jesus Christ, what God has offered through Jesus Christ. There is nothing exclusive. God has not withheld his grace and his love and his mercy from anyone. But for crying out loud, do we live in a world 
that has absolutely isolated itself from that and rejected it. God has excluded no one, but God has been excluded from almost everyone. That whoever believes. You remember when I was talking about that word love, talking about love is an active word, it's not a static word? Believe. This word believe is an active idea as well. Just as love is not a feeling. By the way, did you know that? Love is not a feeling. Love is a choice. Love is something you decide to do. Heaven knows my wife rolls over and looks at me every morning and goes, okay, Lord, I'll love him for another day. <laughs> love is a choice. It is not a thing. It's not an emotion. The choice, folks, let me tell you something. The choice to love generates emotions in ways that you can't imagine. Anything else is just a false feeling. Love is not a feeling. It's a choice. Belief is a choice. Belief is something that God has extended you the opportunity to do. But I want you to look at the object of that belief. See, we live in a world, and, and, and I encounter this more and more, we live in a world that really doesn't want any absolutes. And folks, I'm going to tell you, and, and I'm just this is from the bottom of my heart, this is what I believe. There is absolutely no other name by which man can be saved than Jesus Christ. Mankind's hope is not in politics, it's not in Buddha, and I'm sorry if that's offensive. I do not believe that. I am a Christian, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, and I believe absolutely and unequivocally that belief in Jesus Christ is the only means and only path for salvation for the world. And here's why. These three words, shall not perish. Now, we don't use shall so much anymore. That's a strange one for the, even for the NIV. Will not perish. What does this word perish mean? Well, die eternally, yeah. Well, the word, the word is really, really kind of fascinating because it actually means wander about. Aimlessly wander about. It's like, it's, um, it's like being on a wide road. And, and walking and kind of wandering aimlessly around. But it's where this, it's, it's one of the basic ideas where we get the idea of somebody being lost, a non Christian, someone who doesn't, isn't a follower of Christ being lost. Because they're wandering, they're wandering, they're wandering, and they're wandering to their own destruction. They're wandering lost. They have no direction, they have no light, they have nothing to focus them and lead them and guide them toward the truth and the, the, the fulfillment, the shalom that they're looking for. The irene in the Greek idea. They shall not perish. Those who believe in him, all who believes in him, believe in him will not perish. They will not wander in death and in blindness and in darkness. But what? But have eternal life. Now this is not the sorcerer's stone you don't, you don't make an elixir that, that can give you everlasting life with this. This is an eternal spiritual existence with God. So, what we have here is, is a choice. 
a freely given gift and opportunity to be a follower of Jesus Christ, to experience the blessedness of an eternal life in the presence of God versus unbelief and separation from God. And that really is what it comes down to, isn't it? We don't have a God who's exclusive. We may have churches that are kind of selfish and exclusive. Men's theologies are imperfect. Men's doctrines, men's churches, the way we do life, the way we do faith are imperfect. But God is in the business of saving imperfect people. So, what is it? Why did Jesus come? What is the answer to that question? Why did Jesus come? He didn't come to be a cute little baby in a manger, though he probably was. He didn't come just so wise men could come from the east and, and, and give, give great gifts. He didn't come so that I could get woke up at 4.30 or 5 o'clock in the morning to go in and unwrap presents. Of course, that's getting better these days. Mine are getting older. Jesus came so that we could have life and have it more abundantly. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. It tells us who you are. It tells us how we ought to live. And Lord, I thank you that we can know you personally, that we can walk with you and we can talk with you. So that, Lord, we can have certainty about some things. And I thank you, Lord, that you, you sent your son to die on a cross for me and for everyone in this world so that we might know you eternally. In Jesus' name, amen.